I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me now to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 12. Going back there this morning, last week we focused in again on that great little text, the most pivotal text in Romans, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Remind us of what that says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you. For I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or your reasonable worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing to God and perfect. These, these two verses are the hinge or the turning point in the whole letter of Romans. Everything in Romans 1 through 11 leads you to that. And then I would also suggest that everything afterwards builds off of those two verses, especially in verse 2, which we focused on last week. We saw God's desire to remake our minds. You see, what is, what is natural is for our minds to be molded and shaped by this age. But what God wants to do in each of us is something supernatural. God wants to remake and reshape our minds. He wants to transform us from the inside out. And how does God do that? This happens gradually over time by God's Spirit, through God's Word. As we behold God's mercies in God's Word and keep beholding God's mercies in the Word, especially God's kindness to us in the Gospel, in Jesus, God reshapes our thinking, our minds, so that we're able more and more to see what He sees, to love what He loves, and to even love it in the way that He loves it. This is what Romans 12, verse 2 is all about, and that shapes what comes in the rest of the book. Because if we ask Paul, well, well, what does God want to change our minds about? I think Paul would just say, just keep reading Romans. These are the kinds of things God wants to change our thinking about, and we're going to get into that this morning. Look at Romans 12, verse 3. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, he may be thinking of like his gracious call, like as an apostle, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what's the first thing God wants to change about our thinking in, the, in this section of Romans? The first thing that Paul talks about is how God wants to change how we think about ourselves. And if you didn't notice, this verse is definitely about how we think. Paul uses the same root word four times in verse 3. I'll just try to bring that out a bit. So here's what it would sound like. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, think with sober thinking. That's kind of the way that it, that it looks. Paul knows that there is a natural tendency in each of us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. 
to value our own opinions more than we should value them. And to think of our own interests as the interests that really matter. God wants to change how we think about ourselves. But, but let me ask, how, how should we think about ourselves? What would be sober, sensible thinking about yourself? And let's start to answer this with, with Romans as a whole, okay? So just, just think, like, Romans has said a lot that would shape how we're supposed to view ourselves. What would be sober, sensible thinking about ourselves in Romans? Well, first, I think we could say that we should remember that we are created beings. We are creatures, not the creator. We are subjects to the king. We are not the king. Uh, we could also say we are all sinners. This would shape our estimation of ourselves, that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've not always been faithful, loyal subjects to the king. You know, these are just two of the many things that you can see. Like Romans talks a lot about these things, and, and in light of that, you should have a particular view or estimate of yourself. And, and I think one of the things that we should also keep in mind is this passage is not trying to tell us you should think lower of yourself than you ought to think either, as if we're just a bunch of rubbish and garbage. You know, because that's not, that's not what Romans says either. But Paul's point is you, want, you ought to think rightly, about yourself, not too highly, especially, of yourself. Then look at verse 3 a little closer, okay? It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, so he's specifically talking to the church, the church room, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober thinking, and then he says, and he has to be each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, that last line is pretty hard to understand. If you're in our community groups, we've actually been trying to memorize this text, and that last line has been on my mind all week because I'm not, it's just not super clear what that means. The ESV says we're supposed to think about ourselves with sober thinking, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that last line mean? That each of us should think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay. And if you look at other translations, they're usually pretty similar. The NIV is a good example. Paul says to think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And those are both good translations, but the challenge in both is still to get your mind around what that's, what that's talking about. Okay? The one translation that tries to make it a little plainer is the NLT, the New Living Translation. And I think it's worth hearing. I think it, it probably gets at what Paul's getting at, what I think he's getting at. In the NLT, Paul says... Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given to each of us. Still might be a little hard to catch, okay? But the idea that I think is being communicated is that faith itself is the measure or the standard we should use when we evaluate ourselves. In other words, we'll, we'll think rightly about ourselves when we measure ourselves not by what we've done or accomplished, but when we measure ourselves by the faith that God has graciously given to each of us. 
Or to make that even plainer, none of us should be proud. Why not? It's because we all stand where we stand by faith. By faith in someone else, someone better than us, someone stronger than us. None of us here should think we're better than anybody else here. Why not? It's because we all stand where we stand by the same faith in the same person. And as verse 3 seems to say, even the faith itself that we have has been granted to us by God. Like we didn't muster up even the faith that we have. God opened our hearts to believe on the Lord Jesus. And if we remember that, if, if we keep the measure of faith before us, evaluating ourselves by that measure, it'll be much harder to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Now, verse 4, it becomes clear that Paul's not concerned just about how you think about yourself as an individual. Like, his aim, really, in this text is, to, is that we think rightly about ourselves in relation to the other people around us in the church. Like, he's not just trying to get you to think rightly about yourself as an individual. He wants you to think rightly about yourself in relationship to other people. Like, don't think too highly of yourself in comparison with other people. Don't think too highly about yourself in relation to the people around you right here. And that's where the text goes the rest of the way. Look at verse 4. Paul says, For, for as in one body we have many members, many parts. The members or parts of the body don't all have the same function. So we, in the church, though many are one body in Christ, and individually we're members one of another. Now you can tell Paul's doing more here than simply reminding us that we're all equal before the Lord. Like that's really important to Paul. He reminds us of that through Romans, that we're all equal before the Lord. But here in these verses, Paul goes further than that. We're not just all equal as individuals. Paul wants us to remember that we are united inseparably to each other in the Lord. We're not just a bunch of equal individuals. We are bound to one another in the body of Christ. And to show just how connected we are, Paul uses an illustration of the human body to try to get us to think of how connected you are to the people around you here. What does he say? He says, each of us has a body. He's talking about the physical body in verse 4. Each of us has a body. But each body has many parts. That's the, the word members is just the word parts. Like it, usually the idea of membership even is, is really connected to the body picture, illustration. Like Each body has many different parts or members. And not every part in the body, in your body, does the same thing. That's, as the ESV says, for as in one body we have many members. Not every member has the same function. In human bodies, there are hands and feet, eyes and ears, livers and pancreases, and lots and lots of parts, and they don't all do the same things. That's Paul's illustration. And, and if you've ever read Paul, you know he really likes this illustration. He, he actually talks about this in many different places, like one we read in Ephesians 4, 
1 Corinthians is where he talks about this the most. He goes on and on and on. Like really, like beyond what you would think he would do. Pressing in on this illustration in 1 Corinthians. But what's the point of using the human body as the illustration? It's verse 5. He says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and we are individually members one of another. See, Paul's not just concerned that we think rightly about ourselves as individuals, as separate individuals, as important as that is. He wants us to think rightly about how each member of Christ's body is bound tightly to every other member of Christ's body. We are, we are supposed to remember that we are not independent. This is good for Americans, right? We are interdependent. We are not disconnected individuals. We are interconnected. We are bound to each other in Christ. We, though many, are one body in Christ. And to make it even clearer of just how intertwined we are, Paul adds at the end of verse 5 that we are individually members one of another. You see, for Paul, it's not just that we're all bound to Jesus as separate individuals and just kind of like loosely connected to each other. We're all, the real connection is just to Jesus. That is not how Paul presents this. Now, it is certainly true that we are all connected by faith to Jesus, and that is amazing. But Paul goes further than this with the body image. Paul teaches us that in the church, as a whole and in a given local church in particular, we are bound to each other in Jesus. We, though many, are one body in Christ. And I love how the NIV puts the last phrase. It says, and each member belongs to all the others. It's just like in the human body, where there are many different parts, but each part is bound to the others and is dependent on the others. So I just get us to think, is that how you think about your brothers and sisters? in this church in particular. See, the local church is not like a local club or a local gym. We, though many, are one body in Christ. And each member here belongs to the others, to all the others. And by the way, this is a really fitting day, I think, just to how God and his Providence worked this out to have two new members added to the body today so that we would have to actually read the covenant and think through the things that, that we're trying to do here. And, and what we try to do here at RBC with, with membership is directly shaped by texts like this. This is why we like take, take it slow with people, trying to help them understand what membership involves and what the picture is in the New Testament of this. But back in verses 4 and 5, did you notice Paul also emphasizes not just the oneness that we have, but also our differences. For Paul, we are all equal, but we are not all identical. That's seen clearly in the human body picture in verse 4. Each body has many parts, and not all the parts have the same function. So it is with Christ and in Christ. Okay? It's the differences within the body that then become the focus of the rest of the text. So take a look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, 
The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, so just like how Paul points out there are different functions for different body parts, here he highlights there are different gifts given to the different people in this body. Now, now, let me just say, we could, of course, do an entire series on spiritual gifts. Okay? You may have tons of questions about spiritual gifts. Okay? They're great. We can talk. Keep talking about this. this is, but it's not my plan to start here a full series over the next month or something on spiritual gifts. If you are interested in like reading something more comprehensive like that, I would highly recommend this book right here. This book right here called Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter by Tom Schreiner. It's like my favorite book on this topic. It's so good, in fact, that I loaned it out last week to one of our members here, and then I thought, oh no, I need that book back because of this sermon, <laughs> and so then I went and got it back. From, uh, but I will loan it again. But it is really good, okay? So that, that book would be a blessing. But for our purposes today, we're not going to try to like say everything there is to say about spiritual gifts, but kind of focus on, on what this text emphasizes. And so take another look at it. Verse 6, again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. Okay, so just from that verse, we could say a couple of things. Uh, first is that every, every believer has been granted gifts from God. Paul and Peter, who are the guys who talk about gifts, both start there. Like that's like the presupposition, you know, whenever they talk about gifts. is that everybody who trusts Jesus gets God's spirit, and God gifts them to help the church, okay? So if you're a believer, if you have God's spirit in you, you've been given gifts and abilities to help this particular local body flourish. Okay, second, you notice the gifts that God gives differ. In other words, the gifts God grants to one of his children are different from the gifts that God grants to another. That's not to say there won't ever be two people in the same church with similar gifting, but it is to say that not every person in the body is going to have the same gifting. And this is because God loves us. What would our bodies be like if we were all mouths and no ears, all hands, no feet, and then third, the focus clearly in Romans 12 is on using the gifts. Having gifts which differ, let's use them. Okay, Paul's aim here is not to have a long discussion about the gifts, like he might do in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about this for about three chapters. Okay? Here, that's not his aim. His aim here is to really challenge us to use them to use the gifts and abilities that God has given you to help this body flourish. Okay, that's, that's the focus of this text. Okay, so let's take a look at verse 6 again, and we'll just kind of walk through what Paul says one by one. This is, not, this is not designed to be all the gifts that there could be. I don't even think all the New Testament texts altogether are probably all the things. They're just sampling of the kinds of ways that God gifts and wires different individuals to be helpful to the body. So Paul's going to mention a few, and we'll just kind of walk through the ones that he mentions in the text. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. 
Okay, now this gift of prophecy is mentioned in many of the lists in the New Testament. And I imagine, you know, there is a lot of debate about this particular gift in this list. Okay? None of the other ones is there really much debate about in this list, but this one there is. And I'm probably not going to answer every question you have, but I can highlight a few things uh, briefly. So here, and, and this is how I understand, so I'm going I'm to share with you how I understand what pretty much all of the Bible says about this, okay? To try to, because we don't have time to like go and look at all of this stuff, but hopefully this will be helpful. We can continue this conversation because I know you probably have questions about this. So first, prophecy in the Bible is not primarily about making predictions, okay? Certainly there are predictions sometimes, but the key thing about prophecy is that God directly reveals something to a prophet so that the prophet can then deliver that message to God's people. Uh, Second, Paul viewed Jesus as the cornerstone of the church and the apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church on which God would build his building. This is, you can see that in Ephesians chapter 2. So Paul views apostles and, and prophets, like the apostles and the New Testament prophets, as the foundation connected to the cornerstone, built on the cornerstone of Jesus, on which the rest of the church would be, would be built. You can see that in Ephesians 2, especially. Third, you have to remember, this is hard for us to remember this, that the early church did not have the New Testament hard to keep that in mind. For well over a decade after Jesus, there was not a single New Testament book. And yet the church thrived and grew. It really wasn't until 20 years or so after Jesus that Paul started to write letters. And many books were not written until 30 years had passed since Jesus died and rose. And if you happen to even ever see one of them, you probably only saw one of them. How did the church thrive during this time? There are many answers to that. Like they had the Old Testament scriptures. That was really their their Bible. But one is that God, during this time period especially, revealed his truth to his church directly through Jesus' apostles and through the New Testament prophets. And he would build his church and lay the foundation for the church through their preaching, their oral communication. And then over time, the New Testament was written and, and, and developed. Those are just a, a few like bigger pictures. Now, coming back to the verse here, what's the point? The call here in Romans 12 is simple. If that's how God has gifted you with prophecy, then use that gift in accordance with your faith. Now, again, in churches today, there is, of course, a lot of debate about this gift. Like, is this gift still operating today like it did at the time Paul wrote this? Okay, this is, this is the question, okay? I'm, again, I don't have time to argue for my own, like, view on this, but a few things I would emphasize and at least get you to think about. First, okay, again, prophecy was a direct revelation from God in both testaments. Okay. So, I don't think 
my preaching is prophecy. I also don't think that feeling led by God to do something or to say something is prophecy. I'm not saying God doesn't do that. I'm saying I don't, I don't think that's actually what the Bible means when it's talking about prophecy. Like just you know, a feeling to do this or not do this. Uh, prophecy was a direct revelation from God. And, and when a prophet spoke as a prophet, the prophet was saying, in effect, thus says the Lord. Okay. So, second, because of that, true prophecy was always accurate and always without error. Okay? In other words, prophecy was not mixed with error. If a prophet claimed to speak for God, because that's what prophets claim, okay? and, and if what that prophet said wasn't true, or what that prophet predicted did not happen, then you would know for sure what? That is not God's voice. That is not God's prophet. This is the way I think it is throughout the whole uh, Bible. Third, because prophecy was direct revelation from God, it was binding on the people that God was delivering the prophecy to. In other words, prophecy was authoritative. The spoken prophet prophecy from a prophet saying, this is what God says, was as authoritative as the written word because it was direct revelation from God to the people. This is how I think the, the, the Bible presents prophecy. So, so in light of this, okay, in light of these things, I don't believe that God continues to grant this gift in this way today. But then lastly, I want to say good brothers and sisters may disagree with some of this, largely because they don't agree with some of those other things I said. Okay? Okay? Typically, if someone today, like I'm talking like churches that we have great fellowship with, and this is fine. Like we can have disagreement, discussion about this. I have great friends who, who have some disagreements about this. And where the disagreement comes is actually about the other things I said. Okay? What they're saying is not that God is continuing to give authoritative binding revelation today. Instead, they are usually viewing prophecy as impressions from God about what to do or say, impulses to, to go this direction, impressions that need to be weighed because they may or may not be right. And again, good people can disagree with that. I just don't think that's what the New Testament is talking about when it says prophecy. I don't think prophecy is potentially wrong. You might need to weigh it to see if it's right, like if this prophet's really from the Lord, but a true prophet doesn't speak as a prophet anything that's not true. And prophecy is a revelation that's binding. These are the, this is where I come from. But again, you could, people could disagree. And what I would say is, is most important is that we always come back to the authority of the Bible and that we weigh every thought, every impression, every claim by Scripture. 
But Paul's point here is if, in, in this text, if, if that's how God has gifted you, you use it for the good of the body. Now you go back to verse 6 again. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. Okay, what you're going to see in the rest of the list, and in most lists, is that the gifts, if you look at them all, they usually can be divided into one of two big categories. There's speaking gifts and there's serving gifts. These are kind of the two big categories. I think Schreiner points that out in this, in this book. And here Paul says, if God has granted you the gift of serving, then use it in service to Christ and his people. And here's a pro- probably a good time to mention the obvious, okay? which is that claiming that you are not gifted in a certain way is not an excuse for ignoring all of the commands in the Bible about that thing. Okay? In other words, lots of texts call us to serve the Lord and serve each other. We should not read a text like this and say, well, my gift isn't serving. So I have applied for a religious exemption to, from serving. Right? Like, this, is not, this is not the point. Okay? Uh, right. What Paul is suggesting is that there are going to be some people in a given local body who are gifted by the Spirit in a special way to serve the body. Some of you are like this. I would think of our deacons, for example, but many others that I have seen as well. God has granted you special energy, desire, and ability to serve your brothers and sisters. You delight in it. You are energized by giving in that way. You love to serve. If God has granted you that gift, then put it to good use. As with all the gifts, don't worry about what you don't have. Instead, use what you do have to the fullest for God's glory, your own joy, and the good of your church family. And next Paul says the one who teaches should use it. Use the gift in his teaching. Now, teaching is, again, this is how I understand it. Teaching is different than prophecy in that teaching is not receiving direct revelation from God, like prophecy, but is rather explaining well to others what has already been revealed. So pastors, of course, are required to be able to teach. But they're not the only ones who have this gift in a church. I've heard many of you, for example, teach God's word to the children with clarity. I know many of you are able, by God's grace, to communicate God's word clearly in one-on-one small group settings. Praise God for this. If that is you, if God's given you that gift, then put it to use. The one who exhorts, Paul says in his exhortation. I would take that as a reference to a person who's particularly gifted at encouraging or motivating somebody to action. I think of those who are especially gifted at bringing God's word to bear on practical life. This might include especially those among us who love counseling others, helping others follow Jesus in real life. I see this in many in our church. Perhaps you're not wired for speaking publicly or teaching in a class setting, but you know and you love God's word, and you excel in encouraging others to apply it, to put it into practice. 
at home or at work or in the community, if that's you, put that gift to good use. Next, he says, the one who contributes in generosity. Again, we're not supposed to, to say, well, I know giving my money isn't my gift. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't need to do that. Okay, this, this is not Paul's, Paul's point. But what Paul is saying is that there will be some people in the church who have a special capacity and love given by God forgiven. And this isn't always those who have a lot of money. Some who have a lot of money aren't very giving. This is the kind of person who delights in giving away their resources and their energy to meet needs and to bless others. This is the person who realizes what we all should, that nothing we have is really our own. It's all from God. And they're gifted by God to hold their possessions lightly with loose, open hands. Paul says, if that's you, then give with a generous heart. Do it lavishly, joyfully, generously, without holding back. You are a special gift from God to this local body. Next, he says, the one who leads, do it with zeal. Of course, this is often connected to pastors as well, but it's not just seen there. There will be those in a church who, who lead others in service, who manage things well, who organize well. This is God's gift to our church. The call to those who've been gifted in this way is to lead with zeal, to do it with energy, with zeal. Don't be lazy. Do it with diligence. Lead with all your heart. And lastly, he says, the one who does acts of mercy do it with cheerfulness. This is the kind of person who has a big heart for the hurting, who sees a wounded person and wants to be there, right next to them, to bring the balm, to nurse the weary, to love on the one who's struggling. And again, if that's not you, you shouldn't think that this somehow exempts you from like growing in your care and compassion. But Paul's point here is that in a given church, you're going to see that God has gifted certain people with big, tender hearts. And if that's you, then put that gift to use with cheerfulness. Come to the aid of the hurting gladly and do good to them. Show them mercy, not because you have to, but with all the joy that God puts in your heart. Okay, this is just meditating on some of these. We think, okay, you step back, think from the text today. How do you view yourself? I think this is the beginning of this latter portion of Romans where Paul's trying to show us how God wants to change how we think. And so how do you think about yourself? That's been part of this text. How do you view your relationship to others in this local body? Do you prize your independence or do you sense the interdependence with this body? How do you view your role within the church? So that's what the text has been about. And, and there are ways to look at all these things that are very shaped by this age and that come very naturally to us. It's very natural, for example, very promoted in this age to think very highly 
of ourselves, to think we are very much awesome. It is also very easy in this age to think very lowly about the church, to think that the church is very much not important. It is also very easy to think that you are very insignificant to Christ's body, to think that you have nothing to offer, or to think that there is no need in Christ's body for you and your gifts. May God use what we've seen today to reshape our thinking about all of those things. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word and do your renewing work in our minds so that this week we'll think more like you think about ourselves, about this church, and about your call on us to put our gifts to use. Lord, we pray for your grace and your strength and the power of your spirit to sustain us and to push us and to compel us to serve one another with love and with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.